Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your man in a puka suit, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This is episode 69. You know what that means. It's mostly normal, but some sex horror was coincidentally included. Oh yeah. This episode contains sexy death, genital explosions, and gross tongues. Now eat some ash and sing the puka song with me as we dive deep into some horror. Number 1. Puka Lives 2020, directed by Alejandro Brugues. Ellie, the original creator of Puka, kills her husband with scissors, then dies after lighting herself on fire. A year later, a guy named Derek and his friends make a Puka challenge that summons Puka. People start doing the challenge. Puka pops up and kills those people. The friends try to defeat Puka by stabbing the original doll with scissors, but it doesn't work. Ellie and Puka are the killers. I was excited for Puka 2. That's me again. I know that's not the real title, but I hate the uninspired Puka Lives. I don't know why I was excited. I knew it was a Hulark movie. I know Hulark movies are painfully mediocre at best. Still, I was stupidly hyped for Puka 2. Did it live up to the hype? No. Was it awful? Mostly. What did I like? I liked that it was called out that the friends kept going to the same bar over and over. Since the budgets for Hulark movies are low, they normally don't have many locations. The new Pukas were all created using practical effects, which looked great. Puka ends up transforming from the chubby, lovable goof that's always in our hearts to a fleshier, thinner, spookier version. Shaved Puka was never something I needed to see. What didn't I like? A lot. Puka 2 doesn't have anything to do with the first one. They just reused the Puka stuff they had. A big part of the plot is that Derek pissed off an internet personality named Jax. Jax's fans then start hounding Derek. Derek comes up with the dumb Puka challenge to get back at Jax. Damn. Derek, put him in the ground. You got back at a dude that does dumb challenges by having him do a dumb challenge. You sure showed him. Jax is eventually killed by Puka. This is never brought up again. You'd think there would be some fallout if a prominent internet celebrity live-streamed his death, then disappeared. His fans think it could be a prank, but still... 
Derek is completely unlikable. The dude sucks. How am I supposed to be on the side of Mr. I'm better than everyone grouchy pants? I'm glad the Jax gang clowned on him. Dude is the worst. Let's just jump into gore talk. The gore is boring. All kills are stab and slash related. The best gore that's shown is a babysitter's body that Puka folded up a bit. The acting? It's all bad, but so is all the writing. When a movie is trying to talk about creepypastas but has no idea what they are, that's a problem. Will Whedon overacts for two seconds in the beginning before he's murdered by Ellie. Yeah, he's the husband. He unrealistically goes off on her, which makes her go all stab happy. The other big name in the movie is Felicia Day. I've never thought her acting was all that solid. This movie hasn't changed my opinion. I should talk more about Puka Returns. What happened in it? I just watched it. Why can't I remember anything? Is it because it was bad and forgettable? I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Alejandro Brugues directed a strong, funny short for the Nightmare Cinema Anthology. After seeing what he was able to do with campers and aliens, I thought a goofy puka movie would be a slam dunk for him. No one has ever been able to make a great Hulark movie, so I don't really want to blame him for Puka 2's failure. It's not like he wrote it. The directing was probably the strongest part of the movie. Out of all the Hularks, Puka 2 does look the most cinematic. Ryan Koppel wrote Puka 2, Fire Eyes to Hypnotize. What else has he written? Pretty much nothing. Ruges wrote the script for his Nightmare Cinema short. Puka 2 would have probably been legitimately funny if he wrote it. As it is, none of the comedy beats in Puka 2 land. A man-child husband thinking his wife is dumb for believing in crystals and spiritualism isn't funny, and that's brought up throughout the movie. Puka Lives is a mediocre attempt to get views by including a character from a much more interesting and original movie. The first Puka isn't amazing, but at least it tried to be something new. Waste your time watching Puka Lives only if you are a fool that is still watching the Hulark movies like myself. Number 2, Veronica, 2019, directed by Glenn Danzig. Handsome Squidward breaks necks while a girl sleeps until she kills herself and the police gun him down. The face collector collects faces. A Contessa bays in virgin blood. Handsome Squidward, face collector, aka mystery girl, the Contessa, and followers of the Contessa are the killers. Long before Veronica was available, it was being hailed as the next. The Room? I've never seen The Room all the way through. My brother tried to put it on one Christmas Eve, but since our mom was also in the room, it was promptly turned off when a hot and heavy scene started. I ain't trying to watch awkward sex scenes with my mom. Anyway, I love So Bad They're Good Movies. Troll 2 is one of the most entertaining movies I've seen. Veronica is not bad good. It's bad bad. There are probably five minutes of enjoyable content in Veronica. The rest of the movie is basically a lullaby. 
I'm proud of myself for not falling asleep during the Contessa segment, which feels like two hours of a woman killing virgins and covering herself in their blood. Yeah, the virgin killing blood baths are boring. The first bathing sequence must have gone on for like five minutes. It's not sexy. It's not disturbing. It's a sleep aid. There are a lot of baffling choices in Veronica. Everyone in the first sequence attempts to speak with a French accent. Some of the accents are somewhat passable, but most are laughably awful. I don't think they are supposed to be terrible on purpose though. There are multiple guys whose accents are so off it's hilarious. My favorite being fake French reporter man. What's the deal with handsome Squidward? Well, this lady with peepers on her boobies starts crying, so one of her tit eyes, tears, drops onto a CGI spider across the room, thus creating handsome Squidward, who can do whatever he wants, which is mostly murdering women by breaking their necks, when Eyeball Nips is asleep. Don't bother asking me why any of that is, I don't know either. It's never explained why the girl has nipple eyes or why Handsome Squidward is her own personal Freddy Krueger. Why is the biggest question I had after watching Veronica? The best part of the entire movie involves the face collector. The face collector is the only actor in the entire movie that works for me. Her name is Rachel Alec. Kudos to you, Rachel. You knew you were in a terrible movie and unleashed a full camp performance. If everyone followed your lead, I might be recommending Brodica. During the face collector segment, the face collector collects faces, which is where all the laughs in the movie stem from. The only problem is she spends way more time pole dancing than face collecting. Yeah, in the segment that should be all about the slicing up and removal of face flesh, Two-thirds of the story's time is taken up by some of the laziest pole dancing I've ever seen. If you are going to pad the runtime of your movie with pole dancing, at least hire some acrobatic dancers. Back to the face collecting. Mystery Girl has a bunch of faces that she talks to, which is fun. Whenever she steals someone's face, it's hilarious. This is really the only segment you should ever consider watching. The editing in Veronica is a mess. A lot of sequences end abruptly. Others go on for way too long. A lot of different cuts don't flow together at all. For example, Inips wakes up on the floor and screams. This is then instantly cut to her standing up, not looking, shaken at all. There are a lot of unnecessary camera movements and zooms. I thought the score would at least be decent since Danzig did that too, but the music ranges from cliche to ill-fitting. I wasn't going to watch Veronica after I saw all the hate start coming out months after the initial take that called it room-esque. One dude said it was Danzig using a movie as an excuse to shoot fetish stuff. That dude was totally wrong. If you think that's going on, go watch Slaughterhouse Slumber Party. I watched this dookie after seeing that Red Letter Media released a half on the bag in it. Boy, do I wish I could get those minutes back. Veronica is guilty of the cardinal movie sin that is being boring. Five minutes of fun is not worth an hour and a half of watching the clock 
begging for the movie to end. If Veronica is free, watch the face collector segment and fast forward through the three different lackluster pole dancing sequences. Don't even consider wasting your time watching the whole movie. Number 3, Porno, 2019, directed by Keola Rosella. A group of movie theater employees end up summoning a succubus after playing an old film reel they find in the basement. Their manager is killed by the succubus. Chastity, the employee who is left in charge, defeats the succubus. The succubus is the killer. Porno, a movie that hides its inadequacies behind a taboo title. I checked out Porno since there was some hype surrounding it. A new horror comedy that people are digging? Could it really be good? Horror comedy is my favorite genre, so I hoped that Porno would be fulfilling. It was rentable through Vimeo. Renting it allowed me to throw some money towards my local Alamo Draft House, which is cool. I really hate Vimeo. It has to be the worst of all the streaming sites I regularly use. It constantly buffers and has more issues with Chromecast than any contemporaries. Due to Vimeo being all around garbage, I had to watch the beginning of porno three times before it would buffer correctly. The beginning is two adults banging while two of the movie theater employees peep on them. I had to see the banging three times. Porno makes Veronica and Satanic Panic, another movie I covered in the past, look crazy entertaining by comparison. It's dreadfully boring. None of the characters stand out. The setting is an overtly Christian town. For some reason, the punk rock looking girl Chastity, who should be raging against the Jesus machine, doesn't. You have Jeff, a straight edge dude who's just always grumpy and not funny in the least. You then have friends Todd and Abe. Todd is the only one in the movie that has any characterization. He's a dude that was caught peeping in the past. Lastly, there's Ricky who was sent to a conversion camp after Chastity outed him as gay. That's our ragtag bunch. There should be a lot of personality in that group, but as I've said, the only character that feels remotely like an actual person is Todd. The acting is fine in porno, I'm not blaming the actors, the writing is the problem. Almost every single joke falls flat. Having CBTL instead of WWJD isn't funny, well, maybe it could be funny if it was delivered correctly, that might be a fault of the acting. CBTL? It means Christ bears the load. Get it? It's funny because load. Like semen? Get it? I guess it's not funny no matter how it's delivered. There are some humorous moments when Possessed Todd tries to rescue the film, but by the point Possessed Todd shows up, I was already looking at my phone. That's right, I admit it. Porno was so boring, I was looking at my phone. It's a rule of mine not to goof off on my phone during a movie. That rule is rarely broken. Porno made me break that rule due to how mind-numbingly dull it is. Having realistic genital destruction in your movie means absolutely nothing if everything else is bad. Fine, kudos to the practical effects team for the maimed members. Manager dude has his ripped off and Jeff's explodes. You see Jeff's tended to and it's incredibly yeesh inducing. Ricky has some experience tending to wounds so he helps out. 
Jeff is put off by this since Ricky is gay. I'm straight. You know what really gets my rocks off? An exploded vagina. Yep, ain't nothing hotter than that. Hey, listen, I know that some stuff in my movie, The Bloody Reuben, hasn't aged well. There's a joke, if you can even call it that, about gender assumption. Do I regret that being included? Yeah, it was dumb and ignorant and passing it off as, of course it's off color, the douchebag character says it isn't okay. I've changed a lot as a person since I wrote the short. Punch up, idiot past me. Do I regret including a penis removal sequence that's actually hilarious and way better than the one in porno? Of course not. What I'm trying to say is the writing in porno is bad and out of touch, especially for a movie that was released in 2019. One thing I don't understand is the huge disparity in opinion when it comes to horror. I know that horror is subjective, I get that, but at times I find certain horror movies to be so dull and unentertaining that it blows my mind that people online champion them. With porno, I found the writing, characterization, and plot incredibly shallow. The editing is a mess. There are sequences that are edited together so poorly that it makes a basic action, like a person running past our main group, confusing. My fiancé watched the movie with me until she started playing Animal Crossing since she doesn't have to finish garbage movies for her podcast. While she was still paying attention, an old dude ran into the basement. The employees followed him down there. The old dude ran back upstairs. The employees also ascended back to the lobby. My fiancé was wondering why they left the old dude in the basement. They didn't, but it was really easy to miss the fact that the old dude went back upstairs, since only a quick random shot of feet running upstairs is shown to provide that information. I think all you see of the old man when he's in the basement is that quick shot of his shoes. Since I want to add a little more positivity into this section, I will circle back to the gore. I already mentioned the member destruction, which is practically done and disturbingly realistic. No carved up hot dogs here, folks. Besides penile obliteration, at one point the succubus bursts out of the old man's body. That looked incredible. The makeup effects for full demonic succubus also looked great. Why the succubus is able to shapeshift into men, I'm not sure, seeing as it's a succubus, not an incubus, but whatever. Why would the writers waste time googling what a succubus is? Porno is bad, it's not bad good, it's bad boring. Stay away at all costs. On the bright side, watching porno and Verotica did allow me to include two sexual movies on the sex number episode of the podcast. Number 4, Killer Tongue, 1996, directed by Alberto Schiama. Candy and Johnny betray their accomplices and keep all the money they stole together. Johnny takes the rap and Candy lays low. Right before Johnny is supposed to get out of prison, a meteor crash lands. Candy eats part of the meteorite, which causes her tongue to become sentient. One of the betrayed shows up and is killed by the tongue. Candy's poodles, who transforms into humans, capture people for her tongue to eat. Johnny ends up with another girl, which leads to Candy trying to kill them both. Johnny cuts off the tongue. Once removed from the tongue, Candy turns back to normal. The tongue and the meteorite are the killers. 
a lot of people end up exploding after coming in contact with the meteorite in one way or another. Could it be the movie I've been searching for? It's been months since I originally wanted to watch Killer Tongue for episode 37. That was forever ago. I found and watched half of it on YouTube way back then. I couldn't find the other half. All the options I found were unwatchable. I'd find it in English, incredibly zoomed in, or in great quality, but in Hindi. I tried syncing the two, but one would always end up faster than the other. I even bought a DVD, which ended up being the crappy zoomed in version. Where did I finally find a watchable version? Back on YouTube, I just so happened to search for it again on there, and lo and behold, someone had uploaded it in December. Sure, the picture quality wasn't the best, and it only had the left audio channel, but I was finally able to watch Killer Tongue in its entirety. Did it live up to the hype that stemmed from being able to watch the incredible first half so long ago? No, not really. How could it? I had hyped up Killer Tongue for months at this point. The first half set the bar impossibly high. Poodles transforming into drag queens. Candy, played by Melissa Clark of the OC fame, fighting with her own tongue. A warden, played by Robert England, who happened to be gay and seemed to both love and hate the prisoners, or boys as he called them, that he was watching over. Out of place sound effects that gave the movie comic book feels at random moments. Fantastic practical effects, a terrible main theme that was both catchy and ill-fitting, a banging dance club rest of the score. The first half of Killer Tongue had it all. What did the second half have to offer? A bunch of people exploding and Johnny cheating on Candy with an overtly sexy nun after the meteorite made them horny. Oh, and the tongue started talking. I don't think I like that the tongue talked. Wait a minute. Something that shouldn't be able to talk, that can, and wants to be fed humans? Is Killer Tongue just a loose reimagining of Little Shop of Horrors? I mean, basically. How's the acting? It's camptastic. I have no qualms with anyone. The gore? The tongue shoots straight through a head, which is neat. As stated, a lot of people explode into chunks, too, and it's a lot of fun. All of the gore effects are practical. The production design is really weird and awesome. Candy stays in this dingy pig-branded motel that happens to have a secret, much sexier-looking basement. The church where Candy hid out as a nun and the climax takes place doubles as a gas station. It's a quirky movie. I wish the second half had more zany twists and turns. The climactic fight and tongue removal pales in comparison to more energizing oddity that happens throughout the movie leading up to it. I still think Killer Tongue is worth seeking out. I wish I could tell you where to find it in amazing quality, but currently the only way you can watch the movie in English is on YouTube in beautiful 360p without the right audio channel. Maybe someday a decent quality version will surface and Killer Tongue will become the cult classic it deserves to be. It's not a perfect movie, but it's worth checking out solely due to how bizarre it is. Number 5, Body Melt, 1993, directed by Philip Brophy. People start dying in a suburb called Pebbles Court after a new supplement from Vimuville enters their bloodstreams. Two boys are killed by a backwoods family. 
The police eventually get to the bottom of everything, but the supplement has already made it out to stores. Vimuville and the Backwoods family are the killers. That's the easiest way to summarize the movie. Body Melt was created by Philip Brophy and Rod Bishop, ex-members of the art punk band That's how the name's pronounced. It's written as Three Arrows. Yeah, it's weird. The duo also composed the film's soundtrack, which I dug immensely. It's a weird electronic sound that ends up adding an otherworldly feel to the movie. I think it would be safe to say that Body Melt could be categorized in the splatstick genre. It's Australian, but it heavily reminded me of Peter Jackson's earlier stuff like Bad Taste and Brain Dead. Like those movies, Body Melt is filled with tons of gross, practical effects, weird moving veins protruding from wounds, placenta facehugger, split open pregnant stomach, melting faces, ding dong explosion, neck chomps, a dad turning into a bubbling, fizzy mess. That's some of the grotesque gore that's included in Body Melt. All of it looks fantastic. I will say that I wasn't a huge fan of the POV of the supplement coursing through the body's effect. The look of it didn't mesh with the rest of the effects. It reminded me of the fungus in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Given everything I just mentioned, if I had to summarize Body Melt in one word, I'd have to go with disgusting. Not only is there oodles of gross-out gore, the Backwoods family are also made up to be as unesthetically pleasing as possible with strange lumps and grime covering their bodies. Body Melt is chock-full of weirdness. The first symptom of being infected with the Vimuville supplement is hallucinations. This leads to one man hallucinating that a beat-up woman he lets stay with him who doesn't actually exist turns sexy and removes one of his ribs to add to her men's rib collection. That doesn't really have any bearing on the plot. There isn't much of a plot, and that's okay. Body Melt is a vessel for gross splatstick, which is one of my favorite things. If anything, I think the bare-bones plot that is included takes away from the movie. The creators wanted this to be an anthology. Throughout Body Melt, the police are trying to figure out what's going on after a man from Vimuville, who was trying to warn everyone, crashes his car and dies. Towards the end, chaos ensues at Vimuville. That felt like a good place to end the movie, but we follow the police back to their headquarters where a lot of time is spent watching one more person who came in contact with the supplement explode. I had a lot of fun with Body Melt, but the ending is much weaker than the rest of the movie. The acting works for me. I wouldn't say there are any standouts. There's loads of camp. In the beginning, the guy who attempts to warn everyone burns his ID badge, which makes his picture melt. That's a fun bit of foreshadowing. As far as exploitation films go, I'd say Body Melt is definitely one of my favorites. The unique score along with the incredible practical effects make it worth checking out for horror fans that don't mind over-the-top gross-out gore. I'm debating putting it on the ripe list for the pumpkin harvest this year since I did enjoy how unique and entertaining the movie is, but the ending didn't land for me at all. Endings are important. I think an alternate ending where the cops go back to their headquarters, eat some donuts, realize the donuts were sent over from Vimuville, and all start exploding would have packed way more of a punch. You could still show the supplement making it to the store shelves afterwards. I just wanted a bigger, goopy, explosive ending is all.
Number six, Daniel Isn't Real, 2019, directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer. After seeing the body of a man that shot up a coffee shop, a young boy named Luke starts seeing an imaginary friend named Daniel. Daniel is nice at first, but tries to trick Luke into killing his mom. Luke locks Daniel away. Years later, Luke is in college. He lets Daniel out again. Daniel helps him with his confidence and ladies. Daniel takes over Luke's body, bangs a girl he doesn't like, and savagely beats his roommate. Luke tries to explain that Daniel is doing these things to Cassie, the girl he actually likes. After a therapist hypnotizes Luke, Daniel takes full control, locks Luke away, and kills the therapist. It's revealed that Daniel is an ancient demon. Daniel attacks Cassie, who now sees that Luke isn't in control. Luke is able to escape his prison and jumps off a roof after grabbing Daniel, killing them both. Daniel is the killer. Daniel possessed the coffee shop shooter just like he possessed Luke. It seems like having a Daniel would be crazy beneficial. Things your Daniel can do for you. Recon. Daniel is shown being able to read things that Luke can't see and relay the information. Daniel could peep passwords for Luke. Luke could then hack into the Gibson. Er, sorry, I recently watched the best movie of all time, Hackers. Daniel would definitely have been an asset to Zero Cool, aka Crash Override. If you've never seen Hackers, it's a must-see. Double feature it with Super Mario Brothers for a fantastic time. Throw in Short Circuit 2 if you want to make it a triple Fisher Stevens extravaganza. That is, if you can ignore the brown face. Yeah, Fisher Stevens plays an Indian guy. Hollywood in the 80s. Turns out he's also in a slasher called The Burning. I need to check that out for sure. Fisher Stevens plus slasher must be a good time. Daniel? Who's Daniel? Oh, yeah. I think I've done this same Fisher Stevens tangent before. Anyway, Daniel could do recon, stand watch, provide pep talks, teach you things you don't know like how to make origami tea sets. That last thing happens in the movie. If your young child makes you an origami tea set in a pre-YouTube age, maybe show some concern. They are obviously talking to an ancient demon or something. Having a Daniel isn't all good. A Daniel will also constantly stare at you even when you're getting intimate with someone, try to make you kill yourself by moving your body when you pass out after a night of heavy drinking, and try to push you into liking the cuter girl in the movie. Before Daniel takes over Luke's body for the first time, he can't touch anything himself. How does he take over Luke? Their faces fuse together in a tentacly fashion until they trade places. It looks amazing. All the weird body horror and demon stuff in Daniel Isn't Real looks incredible and fresh. Eventually, Daniel's full demon form is shown as a skull-faced thing with a built-in crown, and the design is stunning. All of the gore demons and shifting is perfect. How's the acting? It's not perfect. Luke is played by Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon's kid, Miles. Daniel is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger's kid, Patrick. I wouldn't say they got the parts due to their acting chops. Nepotism aside, the acting is decent enough. Daniel doesn't require strong acting since he's supposed to come off as an oddball figment of Luke's imagination. Patrick did that well. 
Luke is the character that requires some heavy acting, and I think a better actor would have definitely helped elevate Daniel Isn't Real into masterpiece territory. Miles isn't awful, but his range didn't impress me. Cassie was played by Sasha Lane, who got her big break when a filmmaker named Andrea Arnold randomly saw her sunbathing on a beach. That's how you find someone who's great at acting. Wait, like Miles, Sasha isn't the strongest, but she's fine. There's a lot of neat production design. Luke locked Daniel inside a dollhouse, which has a neat interior. Daniel's lair, or wherever Luke ends up, also looks great. Awesome and varied locations, the underground tunnels where the kids goof off until Daniel ruins everything, and Luke's house growing up that's been completely trashed by his mom are really cool. I liked the dingy red lighting throughout. Daniel Isn't Real is a unique movie. It's a breath of fresh air. It kind of feels inspired by Jacob's Ladder at times, which Miles' pop was in. I heavily recommend checking this one out. You'll definitely be entertained. No, Luke never says, damn Daniel. Not even after Daniel kills the therapist. Oh, and I don't know why Luke's haircut was so terrible. Daniel really should have let him know how stupid he looked. Number 7, Effing Bunnies, 2017, directed by Timo Nuikkonen. A neighbor learned to accept the new satanic sex cult living next door. The actual translation of the film's finished title is Satan's Rabbits. You see, the whole sex cult has a thing for rabbits. They eat a lot of carrots. So many carrots that a certain bodily fluid starts tasting like carrots, which leads to the punchline of the short being that the neighbor has been drinking and eating said bodily fluids unknowingly. Satan's Rabbits isn't a horror short. I want to say it was labeled as such years ago, which is why I added it to the movie list. It's not horror, and it's not a feature. A lot of beefing it on my part. Welp, this is episode 69, so I decided to include it anyway. How's the short? It's fine. I was never bored by it. It's about 15 minutes, not including credits. It's well shot. I found the neighbor randomly talking when seemingly no one was listening a little confusing, but I assumed he was practicing for a confrontation or something. One character breaks his hands in some way, after allegedly banging with the cult. I'm not sure what that was all about either. The whole situation is quite unbelievable, so the actors don't feel like real people. I still like the performances. If a satanic sex cult moves in next door, why not just go with the flow? Effing bunnies is fine, but I don't think you need to sprint to your computer to check it out. That's a wrap on Blink is the Killer 69, Sexy Death, Genital Explosions, and Gross Tongues. I'm glad I stumbled upon some sex-related horror movies for the Sex Number episode. Yes, I've already seen It Follows, which I thought had a strong first half. If you liked the podcast, consider rating it on iTunes. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. Go listen to Director Showdown right now. They're starting a season pitting Edgar Wright against Taika Waititi. I want to say I lean right even though I didn't love his most recent Baby Driver and really loved Watiti's recent Jojo Rabbit. Episode 70 of Blank is the Killer will be up on May 3rd. I think it'll be witch heavy. Until then, don't cheat on your significant other with a sexy member of the clergy, especially if bloodthirsty tongues are involved. <laughs>